Chapter 10 William Romaine, The Man The true Church of Christ works intricately well together, like a well-formed army. The soldiers of an army all owe allegiance to one common leader and are engaged in one common cause. They are commanded by one general and fight against one common foe. Yet there are clear differences and variations among them. Cavalry, infantry, and artillery each have their own specific manner of fighting. Each branch is useful in its own way. It is the well-balanced combination of all three that gives efficiency and power to the whole army. It's the same with the true Church of Christ. Its members all love the same Savior and are led by the same Spirit. All wage the same warfare against sin and the devil, and all believe the same gospel. However, the work of one soldier of Christ is not the work of another. Each is appointed by the great captain to fill his own specific position, and each is especially useful in his own role. Thoughts such as these come across my mind when I turn from Whitefield, Wesley, and Grimshaw to the fourth spiritual hero of the eighteenth century. William Romaine. In doctrine and practical piety, the four good men were, in general, of one mind. In the manner of working, they were remarkably unlike one another. Whitefield and Wesley were spiritual cavalry, who travelled about the country and were found everywhere. Grimshaw was an infantry soldier, who had his headquarters at Haworth and never went far from home. Romaine was a commander of heavy artillery, who held a fortress in the heart of a city and seldom moved beyond its walls. All four men, though, were mighty instruments in God's hand for good, and not one of them could have been spared. Each did good service in his own field, and not the least useful, I hope to show, was the clergyman of Blackfriars in London, William Romaine. In what are called popular gifts, no doubt he was not equal to his three great contemporaries, but none of the three was so well suited as he was to fill the position that he occupied in London. William Romaine was born at Hartlepool in the county of Durham on September 25, 1714. His father was one of the French Protestants who took refuge in England after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. He settled at Hartlepool as a corn merchant and seems to have prospered in business. He brought up a family of two sons and three daughters and left behind a high character as a kind and honorable man when he died in 1757 at the ripe age of eighty-five. There's every reason to believe that Romaine's parents were unquestionably religious people, and that from his earliest years he saw true Christianity both taught and exemplified in his own home. The value of this rare privilege can hardly be overrated. The seeds of a long life of service and usefulness were certainly sown by the Holy Spirit in this Hartlepool home. Romaine never forgot this. In a letter written to a friend when he was seventy years old, he uses the following expressions. Mr. Whitefield used to often remind me how especially blessed I was. He had none of his family converted, while my father, mother, and three sisters were like those blessed people of whom it is written in John 11, 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and as they loved him in return, so do we. At the age of ten, Romaine was sent to a well-known grammar school at Houghtonley Spring, in the county of Durham, 
founded by the famous Bernard Gilpin at the time of the Protestant Reformation. He remained at this school for seven years. From there, in the year 1731, he was sent to Oxford. After first entering Hartford College, he moved to Christ Church College. For the next six years, he appears to have resided principally at Oxford, until he completed his Master of Arts degree in October of 1737. We don't know anything of Romaine's manner of life at Oxford except the fact that he was a good student and had a high reputation as a man of ability. We don't have any record of his friends, companions, and associates. At first, this seems somewhat surprising when we remember that it was precisely at this period that Methodism began at the university. In fact, it was just the time when John Wesley, Charles Wesley, George Whitefield, Benjamin Ingham, and James Hervey were beginning to work for Christ in Oxford, and had formed a kind of religious society. There is not, however, the slightest trace of any communication between them and Romaine. The most natural theory is that he was completely absorbed in literary pursuits, and didn't allow himself any time for other work. We can add to this the fact that the natural tendency of his character would probably incline him to keep it to himself and stand alone. The high character that he attained in the university as a learned man is clearly shown by an anecdote related of him by his pastoral assistant and successor, Mr. Good, after his death. Good said in his funeral sermon, Clothing was never a weakness of Mr. Romaine's. His mind was superior to such borrowed ornaments. Immersed in the noble pursuit of literature, before his consecration to a still more exalted purpose, he paid but little attention to outward decoration. Being observed at Oxford on one occasion, walking by rather negligently attired, a visitor inquired of a friend, a superintendent of one of the colleges, Who is that slovenly person with his stockings down? The superintendent replied, That slovenly person, as you call him, is one of the greatest geniuses of the age, and is likely to be one of the greatest men in the kingdom. Commendation like this was, of course, somewhat exaggerated and excessive, but there can be no doubt that Romain left Oxford a thorough scholar and a well-read man. His worst enemies in his later life could never accuse him of being unlearned and ignorant, Acts 4.13. They might dislike his doctrinal views, but they could never deny that in any matter of Hebrew, Greek, or Latin assessment his opinion was entitled to respect. It would be good for the churches if in this respect there were more evangelical ministers who walked in the steps of Romaine. Grace and soundness in the faith, along with diligence and personal piety, are undoubtedly the main things, but book-learning should not be despised. An unlearned and poorly read ministry, in days of intellectual activity, must sooner or later fall into contempt. Romaine was ordained a deacon at Hereford in 1736 by Bishop Egerton, and was ordained a priest in 1738 by the Bishop of Winchester, the notorious Dr. Hoadley. The history of the first eleven years of his ministerial life contains much uncertainty. I am unable to determine why he was ordained at Hereford. I can only find out that his first position was that of an assistant at Lutrenchard near Oakhampton in Devonshire. He went there to visit an Oxford friend whose father lived at Lidford, and upon the specific condition that his friend could find him work. He only remained here about six months. 
From Lew Trenchard he moved into the Diocese of Winchester, and was curate or assistant of Banstead near Epsom for an unbroken period of ten years. This curacy probably affected much of his later life. It was here that he became acquainted with Sir Daniel Lambert, an alderman of London, who lived in the parish and was Lord Mayor in 1741. He thought so highly of Romaine that he appointed him as his chaplain during the year that he became the mayor, a circumstance that brought him into notice as a preacher both at St. Paul's Cathedral and in many other London pulpits. It is highly probable that the ten years that Romaine spent at Banstead were years of deep study and literary pursuits. It was at this time that he published two volumes in reply to William Warburton's Divine Legation of Moses, in which he ably refuted the main positions of that mischievous book. He also prepared for the press a new edition of the Hebrew Concordance and Lexicon of Marius de Calasio, in four large volumes, a work that required very close attention and that took him no less than seven years to complete. The small size of his parish at Banstead no doubt left him abundant time for study, and this time was well spent. The extremely firm and unwavering position that he held later in life on points of doctrine can be traced in all probability to the quiet ten years that he spent in his Surrey parish. Foundation stones are often laid in a young minister's mind during his residence in such a position that nothing later in life can ever shake or displace. No matter what else is not certain about Romaine's ministerial beginnings, one thing is very certain. There never seems to have been a period, beginning from the time of his ordination, when he did not preach clear, distinct, and unmistakable evangelical doctrines. The truths of the glorious gospel appear to have been applied to his heart by the Holy Spirit from the days of his childhood at Hartlepool. From the very first he was a well-instructed minister, and, unlike many clergymen, had nothing to unlearn after he was ordained. The proof of this can be seen in the sermon that he preached in St. Paul's Cathedral as chaplain to the Lord Mayor on September 2, 1741. At this time he was only twenty-seven years old. The title of this sermon is No Justification by the Law of Nature, and the text is Romans 2, 14-15. William Bromley Cadogan, his biographer, accurately remarks on this sermon. Although we don't discover in this discourse the same fertile experience, use, and application of the truth as are to be found in his later writings, yet we discover the same truth itself by which he was then made free from the errors of the day, and in the enjoyment of which he lived and died. The truth is, he was a believer possessed of that sincere faith that dwelt in his father and mother before him, and we are persuaded that it was in him also. The second marked period in Romaine's ministerial life extends from 1748 to 1766. Within this space of eighteen years he met with some of his greatest trials and filled many different posts in the Lord's vineyard, but always in London. I may add that at no time in his life, perhaps, was he more useful and more popular. He was in the full vigor of body and mind, and enjoyed a reputation as a bold and uncompromising preacher of evangelical doctrine throughout the metropolis, which few other living men equaled and fewer still surpassed. The first position that Romaine regularly occupied in London was that of lecturer at St. Botolph's, Billingsgate. The circumstances that led to his appointment 
were so unusual that I think it's good to mention them. They provide an admirable illustration of the way in which God works by His providence in finding the right position for His people. It seems then to have been Romain's intention, after finishing his edition of Calasio's lexicon, to return to his native county and to seek employment near his home. In fact, he had actually packed up his belongings and had sent them on board ship with this intent. However, as he was going to the waterside in order to secure his own passage, he was met by a gentleman, an entire stranger to him, who stopped and asked him if his name was Romain. The gentleman had previously known his father, and was led to make the inquiry by noticing a strong resemblance to him in the clergyman whom he met. After some conversation about his family, this gentleman, who was a man of some influence in the city, told him that the lectureship of St. Botolph's, Billingsgate, was then vacant, and that if he wanted to become a candidate for the post, he would gladly exert his influence in his behalf. Romain, seeing the hand of God in this unexpected providence, at once consented, provided he was not required to solicit the voters in person, a custom that he always thought to be inconsistent with the office of a clergyman. The result was that in the autumn of 1748 he was chosen lecturer of St. Botolph's and commenced his long career as a London clergyman. It is deeply instructive to observe in a case like this how God chooses the habitation of His people and places them where He knows it is best for them to be. Cadogan, Romain's excellent biographer, remarks on this part of his history. A settlement in the metropolis was the thing of all others that he last thought of, and to which he was the least inclined. From the inclination of his genius to the study of nature, of minerals, fossils, and plants, and the wonders of God in creation, a country life so favorable to these pursuits would have been chosen by him. But God chose otherwise for him, and by a circumstance trivial and accidental to appearance, but in reality a turn of providence such as decides the condition of most men, called him to a city lectureship and so detained him in London, where he was kept to the end of his existence as a witness for Jesus Christ, with abilities as truly suited to this meridian as those of the Apostle Paul to the meridian of Ephesus, Corinth, or Rome. In the year 1749 Romain was chosen lecturer of St. Dunstan's in the West, an appointment that brought down on him one of the fiercest storms of persecution that he had to face in the course of his ministry. The rector of St. Dunstan's, for some reason, disputed his right to the pulpit, and occupied it himself during the time of prayers in order to exclude him from it. In the meantime, Romain appeared constantly in his place to assert his claim to the lectureship and his readiness to perform the duties of the office. The affair was at length carried into the court of King's Bench, and after hearing the cause argued, Lord Mansfield decided that Romain was legally entitled to the lectureship, and that seven o'clock in the evening was a convenient time to preach the lecture. Even then, however, the troubles of the lectureship were not over. Cadogan says that even after Lord Mansfield's decision, the church wardens refused to open the doors of the church until seven o'clock, and refused to light it when there was need. The result was that Romain frequently read prayers and preached by the light of a single candle, which he held in his own hand. Besides this, as the church doors were kept shut until the precise moment set for preaching the lecture, the congregation was usually assembled in Fleet Street, waiting for admission. The consequence was, a large group of people gathered together in a main thoroughfare of the city 
and although not noisy or disorderly, resulted in much inconvenience to those who passed that way. This state of things actually continued for some time. Happily for all parties, Dr. Terrick, Bishop of London, who had once held the lectureship himself, happened to pass through Fleet Street one evening when the congregation was waiting outside St. Dunstan's. Observing the crowd, he asked the cause of it, and being told that it was Romaine's congregation, he interfered with the rector and church wardens on their behalf, expressed great respect for the lecturer, and obtained for him and his hearers that the service should begin at six, that the doors should be opened in proper time, and that lights should be provided in the winter season. From this time forth, Romain continued in the quiet exercise of his ministry at St. Dunstan's, without disturbance, and to the edification of many, to the end of his life. In fact, he held this lectureship for no less than forty-six years, although it was only worth eighteen pounds a year. In the year 1750, William Romain was appointed assistant morning preacher at St. George's, Hanover Square, and held the office for five years. Of all the many pulpits that he occupied during his long ministry, this was by far the most important. Standing, as the church does, in an extremely prominent position in the West End of London, and well known as the mother church of the most fashionable quarter of the city, it opened up to him a great and effectual door of usefulness. In many respects, Romain was just the man for the job. His undeniable powers as a preacher attracted attention. His well-known scholarship commanded respect, even from those who did not agree with him. Best of all, his bold, uncompromising declarations of the real gospel of Christ and his plain denunciations of fashionable sins were precisely the message that the Bible leads us to expect God will bless. It is not too much to say that from the day St. George's Hanover Square was built to this very day, it has never had its pulpit so well filled on Sunday mornings as it was for five years by Romaine. The circumstances of the times in which he preached at St. George's made his testimony especially valuable and important. A cold, heartless skepticism about all the leading truths of Christianity prevailed widely among the upper and middle classes of society. Bishop Butler had complained not long before that many people seemed to take it for granted that Christianity was fictitious and that nothing remained except to set it up as a main object of laughter and ridicule. No Bible reader will be surprised to hear that such principles naturally produced the utmost excess, recklessness, and immorality of practice. In fact, the utter ungodliness of the age was so thorough that few living in the present day can have the slightest conception of it. Romain boldly lifted up a standard against this ungodliness, and he blew the trumpet of the gospel with no uncertain sound. He was in the highest sense a man for the times, and he was exactly in the right place. Those who would like to see how boldly and powerfully he delivered his master's message would do well to read two sermons that he delivered at St. George's, one of them entitled, a method for preventing the frequency of robberies and murders, and the other one entitled, A Discourse on the Self-Existence of Jesus Christ. Just about the time that he was removed from the pulpit of St. George's, the inhabitants of London were dreadfully frightened by two severe shocks of an earthquake. Happening at about the same time as the awful earthquake that destroyed Lisbon in a moment and killed 40,000 people, this event caused great alarm. 
Thousands of people fled to Hyde Park and spent the night there. Hundreds crowded to the places of worship where so-called Methodist doctrines were preached, anxiously seeking consolation. Even Sherlock, Bishop of London, thought it necessary to publish a letter to his diocese on the subject, in which he exhorted the clergy to awaken the people, to call them from their lethargy, and to make them see their own danger. Here again, Romaine was just the man for the occasion. He preached and printed two sermons, which even now will amply reward those who read them. One of them is called An Alarm to a Careless World, and the other is titled The Duty of Watchfulness Enforced. Delivered at the time they were, we cannot doubt that they are examples of the kind of sermons that Romaine usually preached at that period of his ministry. I think it is impossible to read them without feeling deep regret that the Church of England in the West End of London has not had more of this kind of preaching. Romaine's ministry as assistant morning preacher at St. George's, Hanover Square, began in April 1750 and ended in September 1755. During that time he preached occasionally at Bow Church, in exchange with Dr. Newton, afterward Bishop of Bristol, and also at Curzon Chapel, then called St. George's, Mayfair, in exchange with the rector. The circumstances under which he left St. George's are so remarkable that they deserve special notice. It appears that the office that he filled as assistant morning preacher was not a regularly endowed and independent appointment, but one entirely dependent on the rector, and kept up at his own option, discretion, and expense. The rector of St. George's, who first invited Romain to take the office, and then at the end of five years removed him from it, was Dr. Andrew Trebek. His appointment was owing to his high character and reputation, and not to personal friendship. His removal was caused by the popularity and plainness of his ministry. The real truth was that his preaching attracted such crowds to the old parish church that the regular attenders took offence and complained that they were being inconvenienced. Strong pressure was brought to bear upon the rector, and he, willing to please the parishioners, gave Romaine notice to end his preaching there. He received this notice quietly, saying that he was willing to relinquish the office, hoping that his doctrine had been Christian, and acknowledging the inconvenience that the parishioners had experienced. A more disgraceful incident than this probably never blemished the archives of the Diocese of London. An eminent and godly clergyman was removed from his post because he attracted too many hearers. Yet, at this very time, dozens of clergymen in London churches were no doubt preaching every week to empty benches, or to congregations of half a dozen people, without anyone interfering with them. It is comforting to think that there was at least one parishioner in St. George's who made a noble protest against the treatment that Romaine received. This was the old Earl of Northampton. He rebuked those who complained that the parish church was crowded, reminding them that they attended the larger crowd of a ballroom, an assembly, or a theatre without the least complaint. If, he said, the power to attract is considered to be a matter of admiration to the actor David Garrick, why should it be urged as a crime against Romaine? Will excellence be considered exceptionable only in divine things? Another member of the congregation, who is said to have adhered steadfastly to Romaine's cause at this time, 
was Mr. John Sanderson, who later became the official coachman to King George III. This worthy man lived to the great age of eighty-nine, dying in 1799, after long adorning the doctrine he professed by an exemplary and godly life. During the five years that Romaine was preaching at St. George's, for a little while he was the professor of astronomy at Gresham College. There is little record of what he did in this duty, and it is doubtful whether he was very successful in it. In all probability he was a much better theologian than an astronomer, and was better suited for lecturing about Christ and heaven than about the sun, moon, and stars. From the date of Romaine's removal from St. George's until his appointment to the rectory of St. Anne's, Blackfriars, we find him occupying several different positions, although never very long in any of them. The only position that he never left was the lectureship of St. Dunstan's, Fleet Street. At the beginning of 1756 he became a minister and morning preacher at St. Olive's, Southwark. He continued in this office until the year 1759 residing most of the time in Walnut Tree Walk, Lambeth. After leaving St. Olive's, he was morning preacher for two years at St. Bartholomew the Great, near West Smithfield. From there he moved to Westminster Chapel, but only preached there six months. The abrupt termination of his time there was occasioned by a new occurrence of persecution. The Dean and Assembly of Westminster withdrew their support and protection from the chapel and refused to give him their nomination for a license to preach there. From this time on he had no regular employment in the Church of England except the lectureship of St. Dunstan's, until he was chosen rector of St. Anne's, Blackfriars, in 1766. We must not, however, think for a moment that Romaine was idle during the years when he had no regular Sunday morning employment. He appears to have been constantly preaching sermons in London churches about helping and giving to the poor, for which purpose, from his great popularity, his services were eagerly sought after. He also preached very frequently at the chapel of the Lock Hospital when it first opened. At this period of his life he was called upon to preach several times at the University of Oxford. This, however, came to an end after he preached two sermons entitled, The Lord Our Righteousness, on March 20, 1757, in St. Mary's. These sermons gave great offence, and he was never allowed to enter the university pulpit again. They are to be found among his published works at the present day, and they provide sorrowful proof of the spiritual darkness at Oxford a hundred years ago. The governing body of a university that could exclude a man from its pulpit for preaching such doctrine as these sermons contain must indeed have been in a miserably dark state of mind. Romaine's dedication of these sermons to Dr. Randolph, President of Corpus Christi and Vice-Chancellor of the University, is well worth reading. He says, When I delivered these sermons I had no intent to make them public, but I have been since compelled to do so. I understand they gave great offence, especially to you, and I am in consequence thereof refused the university pulpit. In justice, not to myself, for I desire to be out of the question, but to the great doctrine here treated of, namely, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the only ground of our acceptance and justification before God the Father, I have sent to the press what was delivered from the pulpit. I leave the friends of our church to judge 
whether there is anything contained in these sermons that is contrary to the Scriptures and to the doctrines of the Reformation. If not, I am safe. If there is, you are obligated to make it known. You have a good pen and have much time. Make use of them, and I hope and pray you may make use of them for your good and mine. Comment on the whole affair is needless. The treatment that Romaine received at Oxford was as little commendable to the university as that which he received in the West End of London was to the parishioners of St. George's, Hanover Square. It was at about this period of his life that Romaine became close friends with the well-known Lady Huntingdon, who made him one of her domestic chaplains. In this capacity he used to preach frequently at her house, both in London and elsewhere, and at the various chapels or preaching-houses that she built at Brighton, Bath, and elsewhere. To her friendship, indeed, he was finally indebted for his appointment to the rectory of St. Anne's Blackfriars in the fifty-second year of his age. The circumstances, however, of his appointment to this post, the history of his twenty-nine years' ministry in it, and some details of his writings, letters, and character are matters that I will now address.